This episode of Performance Anxiety features violin virtuoso Rachel Barton Pine. From her debut with the Chicago Symphony at age 10 to playing in her own heavy metal band, she's had an amazing career. She's played with everyone from the Vienna Philharmonic to Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. We talk about everything from a violin that's older than America to finding the right bow for it, the accident that cost her her leg to hanging backstage with Pantera. She's also instrumental, pun intended, in bringing to light hundreds of previously unknown or forgotten works from black composers. Follow her on social media at RBP Violinist. Follow us at Performance ANX. And don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen. Please enjoy this episode with Rachel Barton Pine. Hi, this is violinist Rachel Barton Pine, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. I'm really excited about this. This is you're actually the, the first uh, classical musician that I've had on the show, so I'm, I'm, oh, re- cool. I'm really excited about this. I don't usually uh, get to go this route, so uh, so this is really cool. Oh, um, neat. Okay, it's kind of ironic that I'm on a podcast <laughs> called Performance Anxiety because I actually don't have performance anxiety and never have. Really? Yeah. That, good gosh, you're you're look. I get it every time I, I do an interview. It's one of the- <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I get it if I'm going to give a speech, but not if I'm going to play my violin. Oh, that's that comfortable, huh? Yeah, well, I've, well, I've done a lot, a lot of thinking about it over the years, and I think there is a few factors. One is just, you know, preparation. Like, if you, you're really, really prepared, and you know that it's going to go well, because, you know, it's just in your automatic nervous system. Um, another is just the, the mindset, I guess, the perspective on what you're doing up there and um you know if you feel like the audience is somehow a threat then you get that whole fight or flight thing but if you feel like Mm. you and the audience are in in this together to experience this great music and you're both on the same side then you're just kind of a conduit for the music and it's not that they're judging you it's that they're joining with you and then you know it's a whole different thing and you know, and then just telling yourselves that things like, you know, if you make a mistake, they're, you know, it's not a life or death situation. So that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. Now, in, in the live realm, you, you know, you, you don't get the luxury that I get is that I can edit out my mistakes. So that's true. But sometimes that sometimes that eliminates that adrenaline. Sometimes I prefer a live, you know, live radio, live, whatever it is, because then you just go for it. That's and a when good you point. No, it's being recorded. You're like analyzing yourself too much and you actually might do worse. That's a, you know, that's a really good point. And I guess it, it helps if you've been playing your instrument for a long time. Well, yeah, experience. That's the other thing, you know, and just making sure that you're just up there so much so often that it becomes second nature and I always tell young artists you know students that if they don't have many public performances that frequently that they should find other opportunities to kind of get that jolt of adrenaline and get used to it even playing for a few friends that come over to hang out or going to a retirement home or whatever they can do to just be in front of people on a regular basis that's good advice that's very good advice so how long have you been playing the violin well, I started when I was three and a half. Three and a half. Pretty, wow. It's pretty normal, and um, you know, it wasn't my parents' idea particularly. And in fact, it was kind of the opposite of the of the ambitious, you know, stage parents. They were like, "Don't you want to put that thing down and go ride your bike?" But I'd seen <laughs> some. I saw some middle school age girls playing violin in my church, and I was just, 
you know, really intrigued by the sound of the instrument. I begged my parents for lessons and there was a teacher in walking distance that summer. So I started for fun and then just absolutely fell in love with it and didn't want to do anything else. And by the time I was five, I was self-identifying as a violinist. Like that was my whole, like, like reason for existence. And my parents were like, what is going on here? But when they, (laughs) they did a little research and figured out you could earn your living playing the violin. So they're like, I guess we'll let her do this if she's that obsessed by it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And now your daughter's also playing violin, correct? Yeah. So actually I was thinking I might have her play cello because it would be like similar yet different. But okay. then my husband pointed out that we didn't want to try to board an airplane with a cello every single week. Oh, so, God. She, she's been on the road with me since she was three weeks old and now she's seven and she still travels with me some oh, wow. of the time and our nanny homeschools her as we travel around and it's not really homeschool. It's like airplane school, backstage <laughs> school, hotel school, and all of that. <laughs> um, oh my God. Yeah, so so you know, we ended up giving her a violin because it made more sense with our lifestyle. She couldn't really do piano because where's there going to be a piano in every town? And no, yeah. you know, so violin just seemed like the most logical thing. And I was a little worried because you know I didn't set out to raise a carbon copy, but it turns out that she's a totally different personality than me. She loves music, but I was all about learning as many pieces as I could that had been composed by, you know, others throughout history. And okay. Sylvia is all about her own melodies. Like she actually, when you say, are you a musician? She'll say, yes, I'm a composer. Oh, and then wow. you have, and then if you say, do you play an instrument? She'll say, yes, I play the violin. But she doesn't identify as a violinist like I did. She identifies as a composer. And she just, you know, has music pouring out of her, her own original stuff. So that's really interesting because that's, that's like amazing. a totally different path than I was on. And just trying to do my best as a parent to to nurture that within her. That's and it's incredible. kind of exciting. And, and your husband's not a musician. Is that right? No, he, he he appreciates music, and he, you know he played a little violin in school. But um, he was a minor league pitcher, and then he started his own company. Oh wow! Um, you know, and he does computer stuff. So it's it worked <laughs> out really great. Like when I was growing up, you know, all even like all through my teenage years into young adulthood, like the only question that I had was you know, which instrument will my future husband play? (laughs) Like, it wasn't even a question of whether I would marry marry a musician. It was just, you know, will it be a brass player? Will it be a pianist? Like, who's it going to be? And then, you know, I met my husband and I was like, oh, actually, this could work. And it actually works brilliantly because if, if we were both musicians and I was off doing my concerts and he was off doing his concerts, I have so many colleagues who have to try to have a marriage over Skype. And it's really sad. Either that or they have to, like, try to cut back on, you know, trying to go to each town for the minimum number of days. And, and my husband just brings his laptop and he's been on the road with me since 96, if you can believe wow. it. And now he has a bunch of employees and a bunch of clients, but he makes it work. And it's just really great because it's like wherever we are, that's our home for the week. That's and, fantastic. you know, hotels are awesome. They change your sheets and they change your <laughs> towels and they bring you room service. And why not? Yeah. <laughs> and if you get to the really nice ones, they put chocolate on your pillows. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I that's what I hear. I don't know. I'm just guessing on that one. <laughs> well, that's a that's a very interesting lifestyle and a, one that that I hear about. But you're also part of a heavy metal band, and do you find that touring for one or, or playing the audience and the lifestyle is different for for each type of music? Oh my gosh! Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, 
I mean, oh gosh, where do I even start? Oh, God. well, anything, you know, anywhere. I mean, it was really funny when it was with my band. It was, it was very humbling, you know, because it like he kept my ego in check. Because you know, I'd show up and you know they'd be like, "Who are you? What band are you with? Are you supposed to be here?" Instead of like, <laughs> "Oh, hello, Ms. Pine. We're so honored by your presence. Let us lead you to your dressing room." Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the very first gig I played with my band, they asked, "You know, what do you want in the dressing room?" And I guess the answer was supposed to be like, you know, water, beer, whatever, like that. Um, and I was like, "Oh, well, you know, just if you, you can just keep it simple. If you could just have maybe some hummus and crudités, that'd be perfect." And they looked at me like, <laughs> well, I was, and I, they looked at me like I was making a joke. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, we're in a very different world here. Yeah, <laughs> take a step back." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I always thought I'd have, you know, different guy in each town. Uh, or I should say that different. I yeah. always thought I'd have a guy in each town, and I do, but it's the same guy, which is even better. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't grow up listening to a lot of rock or any rock. Well, since you? age 10. Okay. So I grew up with classical. You know, my parents had it on in the car or in the home. Like, it was classical, 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 except with the exception of Chicago Blues. Oh, okay. Um, you know, they didn't, they didn't play their old rock albums for me at the very young ages because, you know, I, it's like anything. Like, I don't play my favorite metal bands for my own daughter because it's like I don't have her watch an R-rated movie. You know what I'm well, saying? yeah. Like, yeah. it's great art, but she's too young. Um, yeah, there are elements that you guys, you probably don't want exposed. You can, I've got three of my, my own, and, uh, yeah, there's yeah. certain things that I don't play for them. <laughs> It's not even about the lyrical content. It's just about the aggression and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she, but what's funny is she's actually jammed with me on some Black Sabbath medleys and stuff. And, um, oh, wow. But, but it's different when you play it on violins, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> <bet. laughs> she's, yeah, she's ready to rock out. Um, oh, but anyways, yeah, so my parents had their old blues records, and I kind of, that I felt like that was sort of in the air. Um and that was, you know, their favorite genre when they were a young, you know, leading couple before I came along and spoiled their fun. Um, <laughs> but then Santa Claus brought me my first transistor radio when I was 10 and I was scrolling up and down the dial, like discovering all kinds of stuff, you know, 80s uh, rap and pop and oldies and classic rock and, you know, just everything. And there was a station that came on at the end of the dial every night at 10 p.m. And it played, you know, like like the good stuff, like Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth, Pantera. Oh, and I was just like, whoa. And it <laughs> just like really grabbed me. And it wasn't until years later that I discovered that all those bands are very classically influenced. And that's no doubt why I was so attracted to it, because it's actually like sophisticated and complex. But at the time, I just thought it was something that kind of an escapism where my brain wouldn't turn off when I listened to classical for pleasure. Like I couldn't just relax. Okay. Like if it was a piece I knew I'd be thinking, Oh, how are they interpreting that composition? And right. If it was a piece I didn't know, I'd be analyzing it like, Oh, how is that composition put together? And oh, you know, metal, I could somehow just turn off my brain and I wasn't thinking. Then I started playing it on the violin and it was all ruined and I'd be like, oh, let's see. So there's the bridge and there's the chorus and then the solo is like this and this and this. And then I was like thinking again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so you started listening to all the, all the old school thrash bands. Are you uh, Camp Metallica or are you more Camp Megadeth? Oh, geez. Well, I have red hair. So what can I say? Megadeth. 
So, you know, I'm Van Hagar. It's like whenever there's a redhead, Axel, whatever. I was like the only girl I knew. It's like I didn't want to like be with Axel. I wanted to be Axel. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just all about the red hair and getting up there and, you know. Oh, yeah. But that being, that being said, I mean, you know, Desert Island Discs, you know, I'd have to have like puppets and justice, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can absolutely agree with you on that. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Megadeth fan myself. I was. But I go see them any day over the other guys these days. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Totally. Absolutely. I got a chance to see Megadeth once, and they opened up for Heaven and Hell, uh, Ronnie James Dio, and, and when they couldn't yeah, when they couldn't call themselves Black Sabbath with, with Ronnie James Dio anymore, so they toured as Heaven and Hell. That was a good show. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, listening to classical music, you would – kind of take the pieces apart while you're listening and you couldn't relax listening to it. Um, I mean, I would enjoy it, but I couldn't just, you know, like yeah, chill yeah. out at the end of the day. Right, so ironically, right. I would like literally relax the breath, which sounds counterintuitive, <laughs> yeah. but it was just like a chance to unwind and just like, you know, let my brain turn off a little, which is not to say that it's like dumb, mindless music either, right, you know, right. but uh, yeah, it was just, you know, and, um, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It was, yeah, that was the music that just felt like it was, it was right for me. Still does. When you're, when you're playing live, how much interpretation can you give to the pieces that you're playing? And how can you, can, how do you make it your own? How, like you're yeah, saying somebody interprets things. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, a lot of people think that there's no element of improv in classical. Of course, that's not true for earlier classical music, like stuff from the 16 and 1700s, what we call the Baroque period. There are all of these, um, well, in R&B, you call it melismas, right? Where you have a simple melody and then you add all these extra notes. Okay. And we call it ornamentation. And you get to do that, you know, either you, you work it out ahead of time or once you get more used to the style, you can do it spontaneously and extemporaneously and just go with the flow and you know i guess maybe closer example is jazz where you add all you know you have a, a simple melody but you're never supposed to play it there because that would be tasteless you're supposed to add stuff right. so in baroque music we add stuff but ever since then like the time of mozart onwards basically the last 200 plus years the composers really have basically written out exactly what notes you're supposed to play and you have to play exactly those notes and if you skip a note or add a note, you're making a mistake. So uh. does that feel constrictive? And the answer is no, because they're one of the interesting things that separates a lot of, of classical from a lot of non-classical, whether you're talking about rock, pop, world music, folk music, traditional music, whatever. Oh, so many styles of music have a steady beat. They might change tempo from time to time, but they have a steady metronomic beat. Right. And so much classical music does not. It's like completely free flowing and what you do with the timing is totally individual and it's like poetry. It's like how you say the line, how you bring it to life and tell the story and it's all based on emotions. And so you definitely experiment in the practice room. You figure it out. You read about the performance traditions, listen to artists of the past, study the score, read about the history of the time and place the composer came from, all that background stuff. But then when you're on stage, there's just a whole element of inspiration with the acoustics of that hall and the vibe of that audience and the other musicians you're playing with. And a lot of it is 
very, very spontaneous. And that's our improvisation is how we play the notes. And it can be different every time and it makes it super fun. Of course, on a recording, you can play it over and over until it's perfect and you capture your vision. Right. But you never, but and you can never do it that perfect on stage. But on stage, you can actually go beyond your vision and suddenly have an inspiration for something because you're in that moment that you would have never figured out in the practice room. But there it is happening. Okay. That's so it's really magical. That's absolutely fascinating. And and you've mentioned before, I've, you, I've, read and I've listened to some interviews and I, you've mentioned that people should, people who listen to, to hard rock should definitely give classical music more of a chance uh, because a lot of these bands, like you, like you said earlier, are influenced definitely by classical music. You've played rock in a classical style with the, the violin. How difficult is it to arrange that type of music into, a, into something that can be played on the violin? Oh, not hard at all. In fact, I have a podcast called Violin Adventures, and I have an entire episode about how to make your own string arrangement of a rock song, and I take you through the whole step-by-step process. Oh, and awesome. um, yeah, it's really it's really very straightforward. Um, I mean, some things you have to keep in mind if you're not playing with drums, you know, but but you need a beat, then you have to either have like a sequence of accents that you do with the way that you play the bass line, which in you're not really playing it as a baseline. You're kind of using those pitches, but using it, you know, sort of as a rhythm section, or you even have to add rhythms. Well, a good example is Black Sabbath song, Black Sabbath, where the actual notes are going, boom, boom, right? But the drum is going, boom, 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 boom. So, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to like hit your bow on your cello and make a crash right Right. so but you but playing it without that beat it would be totally lacking in something so what we do is we combine it so we're actually using the pitches of the notes but then the rhythm of the drum beat so you go on the cello and that way you can have that element and then it's also a question of you know what tempo works because sometimes um, in order to retain the spirit of the song, you know, you don't want to do an exact replica. You don't want to have the same BPM as, you know, the commercial recording. Of course, sometimes the bands themselves don't even perform it at the same tempo that's on their album. So it's interesting right. to, like, listen to live concerts on YouTube or something and figure out how close to their album the band themselves are. You can also kind of figure out from that whether the solos are more like composed solos or improv solos. And if they're more like composed solos, then you might, you know, have more of a likelihood to do that same solo. Whereas if it's an improv, so, you know, if they play a different solo every night, then, yeah, people know the one from the album. But if the band doesn't ever play that one, why should you? Then you have the freedom to maybe just blow your own solo. And, of course, without go. lyrics, you know, and you get to verse five and it's the same darn notes, you're not doing lyrics. What's the point? So sometimes I shave a few verses you know, so there's a, yeah. like a lot of tricks to, and I feel like actually you're honoring the originals more by making these modifications because you're retaining the spirit. Whereas by trying to do some kind of a carbon copy, you might actually be less effective and therefore less true to the spirit of the song. So yeah, that's just some of the things. Sometimes I change the the octaves. Sometimes I have one instrument or another instrument. You know, switch roles. All kinds of fun stuff. Oh, okay, that, that's really cool. Now. I have, I've got a question. I've, I thought about this today. Um, when, 
when you're listening to, I know you like Led Zeppelin. I've, I've, I've discovered that through some of your interviews. And, and, and Honestly, I think that goes back to my roots in the Chicago blues. I mean, I, I appreciate their psychedelic stuff. I know that's actually probably their more important stuff, but I kind of just like their their cheesy testosterone-fueled you know, blues <laughs> like extravaganzas, you know? It's just like, okay. I don't know. It's just fun. Well, what yeah, can I yeah. say? Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. How is... Uh, Jimmy Page's bow technique on Days and Confused. Ha! Oh, well, you know, I got to play with those guys in 96 when they were doing the Page and Plant tour. Oh, uh, if man. You go to my old, if you go to my old Flickr, you can, like, see me with with um, Jimmy and Robert. And I was like, you know, great moment of my life. That's um, amazing. But I asked Jimmy, like, why don't you play with a violin bow anymore? And he was like, oh, it's just too, too hard. Which I get because, like, it is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I saw this great cover band. They're all women. I don't know what their orientation is, but of course, they they call themselves Les Zeppelin. Yes. Like, how could how could you not? Right? Yes. But they were they were killer, and uh, the 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 you know front woman you know was what's how do you even pronounce that word l-i-t-h-e yeah yeah (laughs) and then the the drummer looked like Jabba the Hutt, and they were awesome, Um, but. They were using a violin. The guitarist was using a violin bow and like tearing it up. And she was like Jimmy Page in his youth. And that was like pretty amazing. Actually, my favorite Led Zeppelin singer these days is um, Ann Wilson. Yeah, Ann, right? Yeah, yeah. Nancy the guitarist. Ann Wilson. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just love hearing her sing those old songs. Yeah. I mean, and she's been singing that powerfully for decades. I I know. Well, there's so few. It's like every time I think I like a female vocalist like they get girly on me (laughs) the ones who are like going so extreme they're just doing the growls but like i just love a singer like ann wilson and there just aren't enough of them out there you know oh yeah it's really something special yeah i agree because i'm that she's so good i'm not thinking it it doesn't matter to me that whether she's male female like she's male that would be that's a weird sentence but it it, it doesn't matter well that's the thing she's just a rock singer yeah yeah, the, the and her voice is incredible. I don't know that you, I hear so many people, so many singers who you can tell that their voices are degrading over the years, and her voice just seems at least as powerful as it was back in exactly. the seventies. Totally, know. it's unbelievable. You yeah, have, you don't know what's genetics and what's yeah, you know, like like maybe she does the right warm ups, or maybe she did less bad things to herself. Or- That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little less self indulgence than Robert, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. But, yeah, I actually want to go back to something you were saying earlier about yeah. classical and rock, though, because we all know that there's like a million sub genres and sub sub genres of rock, right? Oh, God, like yeah. all these narrow delineations and. You have, you know, even death metal is now a category and there's this kind of death metal and that kind of death oh, metal. Yeah. And, and that's a category. Yeah. And so, you know, classical, we think of it as one thing, but it actually goes for hundreds and hundreds of years as opposed to just a few decades. And so it's kind of crazy yeah. that it's all lumped together because it's so diverse and so widespread. And, yeah, you know, true. you don't expect expect any one person to like all of rock, right? right. I mean, the person listening to some kind of mellow 70s stuff is not also like, you know, going to, you know, hear Dillinger Escape Plan <laughs> or vice versa. Or maybe they are, but maybe they don't too. like something. He's somebody who listens to some 
Baroque music in a movie soundtrack and thinks, oh, that doesn't do it for me. Maybe they haven't heard a Mahler symphony or maybe they haven't heard a Brahms violin concerto. And I just feel like, and especially for metal fans who are used to like that, that drama, you know, the whole Iron Maiden like operatic thing oh, and, yeah. you know, the intensity. I feel like there's so much classical music out there that really nails that. And a lot of times it's not the classical you hear because you hear the more mellow stuff when you're in the dentist's waiting room or a hotel lobby or something, yeah. you know, or, or whatever they put on in a restaurant. And, yeah. you know, they're not going to put the bombastic, just like they're not going to, you know, except for a couple of great burger joints, you know, I can't think of any restaurant I've ever been in where they were blasting the anthrax. Well, so yeah. it's the same thing, That's you know, and so true. people think they know what classical is and they think they, that it's not really that great because they haven't heard the other stuff. If you... If you were trying to introduce somebody who's a big fan of Iron Maiden, Metallica, Megadeth, the classic metal bands, Anthrax, who would be a good composer to introduce them into a, a, a the classical world? Shostakovich. Shostakovich, for sure. Okay. He was a 20th century Soviet Russian composer. His music was like, I don't know if you call it protest music. It was like... It was like, you know, railing against, you know, the atrocities of humanity. And it's just so dark and deep and just blows your mind. There's actually a Facebook page called I Headbang to Shostakovich. <laughs> and everybody, like, posts their favorite moments from all his stuff. Oh, um, wow. But, like, Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 5 would be a great one to check out. Ooh, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that down. Because I'm, I'm, I'm exactly where you said most people are. Where... I don't know the different types of classical music. I know what I like, but I I, I couldn't tell you what what type it is. I, I'm not that knowledgeable on it, and I, but I'd like to get a lot more knowledgeable on it. So that's, I, I definitely have some homework to do. Yeah, it's too bad there aren't more websites like, you know, discovering classical music for people that are coming from other kinds of music or yeah, I mean, something like that. There's, there's a the ton nice of stuff is, for, for, for rock. Like if, if you're looking for, if you like Queen of the Stone Age and you want to find something that sounds like them, there's a, there's, there's websites for that. They should, there should definitely be one for classical. Yeah. And I, I think it's just such a, you know, it's, there's just so much stuff. It's like, where do you even start? But the nice thing is you can go to the internet and try stuff out and figure it out. And, you know, I think the, the one sticking point is like I've met so many people who love classical and have found their niche and you know, they like Stravinsky Rite of Spring or they like, you know, the you know, Beethoven Symphony number no. seven. They like, you know, some of this stuff, but then the idea of going to a live concert, there's a lot of misperceptions about what that atmosphere is. Okay. You know, people worry that it's gonna be like the country club, you have to wear a suit and tie, you have yeah. to like, be polite and maybe it's gonna be a bunch of snobby people there and that's totally, yeah and that's totally not true these days but you know i think people are a little intimidated like they won't know how to behave or things like that the funny thing is it's the opposite too like i had friends who like classical friends who would listen to my band's album and be like oh man i'd love to catch one of your live shows but i've never been to one of those metal clubs before isn't that going to be a bunch of scary <laughs> tattooed people like crashing into each other and <laughs> Uh, and I'm like, no, like metal fans like have office jobs and go to a metal concert on the weekend. Like they look like <laughs> yeah. you. There's nothing scary about. I mean, yeah, you, okay, you did have the, the tattoo people too. But, yeah, well, yeah, you know, it wasn't <laughs> just like they were gonna hurt you or something. Yeah, <laughs> so. most of we've got we've grown up. We had to get real jobs. 
<laughs> so it's funny how people just have these like stereotypes in their mind and then like are afraid to take a risk. And yeah. so, you know, I always try to be like, Hey, I'm a metal fan and I love classical and you can totally go check out a classical show and it's going to be awesome. Oh yeah. That's I, I'm definitely gotten more into it with my kids being more into uh, classical music and, and, and doing the marching band. I've been, I've actually learned a lot through that. So I'm trying that to get that. That stuff them. blows my mind. All that choreography. Oh my god! Like I can play a whole bunch of notes, but I don't want to have to like think. Okay, turn right and then walk around in a circle, <laughs> and then, like, oh my gosh, no way! <laughs> oh, it's it's crazy. It, and you know, my my kids are two thirds of them are in high school. The, the the youngest ones in middle school, and uh, they're all going to be in marching band. And I'll, I'll have three of them on the on the football field next year doing it. And it's wow. to watch my my son. He's he's. It's funny because he's taller than me now, but he's so scrawny, but he carries this big sousaphone all over the football field. And he's just sitting there <laughs> spinning and turning and, and twisting. And I don't know. I, I swear the stamina of those kids and, and counting off their steps. And it's, it's incredible. It really blows me yeah. away. Well, it's definitely a young person's sport. You can get great <laughs> musicians in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, but you don't see any six-year-olds doing marching band. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Although, Concert you know band, yes, but not marching band. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I might pay to see that, though. I would definitely... Uh, Actually, that'd make a fun reality show, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be great. I don't know where you would pull these people from, but that would be fantastic. <laughs> so I have a question for you. I, I have read a some bios uh, of some classical musicians and all. But a lot of times what's almost more interesting is the instruments that they play. And you have a very old, very valuable violin. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got to play it and uh, a little bit about its, its, its history? Yeah. So basically, unfortunately, um, a lot of these antique instruments are owned by collectors who've bought them as investments. They're not very liquid, meaning if you own one, you can't just turn around and sell it tomorrow like you can with a stock. But True. it's very secure, meaning that it's never going to go down in value. In 100 years, antique instruments have never, um, antique string instruments have never gone down in value. Wow. So for people who are super wealthy and, you know, just want to like diversify their portfolio, they will buy instruments because they know it's actually a good investment. And the problem with that is that over a number of decades, the price of these things has risen and risen and risen. And it's not like visual art where, okay, one person owns it, they hang it in their home, they and their friends look at it. That's nice. They own a violin. You don't play it and it's like sitting there like a like a piece of wood. What's the point? Yeah. It's not meant to be an object of visual art. It's meant to be a living voice. And so luckily enough of these patrons realize that it's better for everybody for these instruments to be heard. It's not it's definitely generous, but it's not mere altruism because actually it's better for the owner for the instrument to be played. First of all, the recipient pays the annual insurance. And believe me, that's a chunk of change. Oh, so yeah, actually, they, they have one less bill to pay because <laughs> I'm paying that bill. Um, <laughs> but then also, a lot of an instrument's value has to do with its history. It's not just how beautiful it sounds and the fame of the maker and the condition of how good shape it's in, you know, but it's also about the history. Okay. And so if an instrument is out there in the world, in the media, doing recordings, doing performances, etc., it's adding to its legacy, and that also increases 
its value. And and also, you know, certain things need to be like locked away in a museum in order to be preserved so they don't get used up, right? Right. But violins actually are healthier if they're being vibrated. If they sit around not being vibrated, their voice kind of goes dead, and then you have to really work to wake it back up. Oh, really? And so it's actually a lot better for them to be out there being played. It's like, you know, certain mechanical things where they need, you know, the gears need to run. You know, yeah. they can't just, like, sit there rusting, right? So, or if you point. think about it, if you didn't talk for 10 years, you'd sound a little croaky at the end. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, so... Um, a lot of times the, the governments will actually own some important instruments and then loan them to the best players of that country to represent them in the world. Or um, in Asia, sometimes they're owned by corporations who loan them to your artists as a patriotic duty. And here in the U.S. with our capitalist system, we rely, you know, just on individuals. And you just kind of, you know, it's a small world. You make connections, performers, you know, there's only a certain number of us at this level. And then there's the patrons and you meet them and get to know them and, you know, if you're lucky, a match is made and somebody loans right. you an instrument. So I'm incredibly grateful for this particular one. It was made the same year by the same maker as Paganini's violin. So it's a oh. 1742 Guarneri del from Cremona, Italy. So, yeah, 1742 before America Jeez. was a country. And, um, and basically... It has um, a really cool history. So it was the concert instrument of one of the great Italian virtuosos right after Paganini in the first part of the 1800s. And then in the late 1800s, it was the concert instrument of a woman violin soloist, Mary Soldat, who was a protege of Brahms. And Brahms himself chose this instrument for her. Wow. He, of course, was a pianist. Um, that was his instrument. And... Um, she would and he would play um, chamber music together, like small ensemble stuff. And so oh, my violin God. actually got to jam with Brahms in like trios and quartets, even duets. And that's incredible. yeah, it really is. And um, yeah, of course, I was the first person to ever play thrash on it. Yeah, but <laughs> 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 and I play Brahms. It's really like just perfect for that music, and it does so well with all of the the 19th century big cat romantic concertos. And I mean, it sounds great with anything. One of the best descriptions, like people say, well, why are these old instruments better than new instruments? And that's, it's not that they're better, um, but they, they do become more complex with age, like a fine wine. Okay. And, um, you know, like new instruments, their colors are every bit as gorgeous as old instruments. I mean, you know, the best new ones, right, um, right. but there just aren't as many. And so it's like painting with a Crayola box of 24 instead of like millions of Pantones and every sh possible shade. And so a violin like this, it can do anything I can imagine. And then it even like shows me what's in it and inspires me to think of things I wouldn't have otherwise. And it's just like this, it's almost like this symbiotic relationship where it's responding to me, but I'm also responding to it. And it's really kind of almost like a, like a living partner in the music making oh wow that's incredible are there antique bows that go along with the antique violins that's a great question the bow actually is not just like any you know you don't just pick up any old guitar pick and right. you know, <laughs> one is as good as another like bows actually are a very specific thing first of all they're made out of whereas violins are made out of spruce and maple 
with a bit of ebony thrown in. Bows are made out of Pernambuco wood, which you've probably never even heard of. It's a no. particular tree that only comes from Brazil, and now it's very rare. And it has the combination of strength and flexibility, which works best for violin bows of any tree on the planet. Oh, wow. And um, it's really such an individual thing. Like most violins ergonomically feel fine. Like, you know, it's a matter of personal taste if you like the voice of that violin. Yeah. But in terms of just physically being able to play it, like most people can play most violins, it's not a big deal. But bows, like one thing that feels really responsive in one person's hand can feel awkward in another person's hand, which is really uncanny. You have to find a bow that feels right to you. And then it has to be a three-way match because... Um, you know, it's like you find a guitar you like, and then you have to like try all the different brands of amps and the brand that works well for that guitar might right. not be the same brand that worked well for your last guitar and all of that. And so it's like with the bow, it's not that the bow has tone, but different bows draw different tone out of the same violin. In fact, students always make the mistake. Like if they have, oh, I don't know, of let's say, a, you know, an $8,000 violin and a $500 bow you know, some kind of like, you know, low end right. stuff. Um, then they <laughs> might be like, Oh, I've got a few extra grand. I'm going to upgrade to a $12,000 violin. And it's like, they would be better off upgrading from a $500 bow to a $2,500 bow because then that $8,000 violin they already have is probably going to sound so much better. And there's going to be so much more you can get out of the violin you've already got. Oh, so, wow. you know, so finding the right bow is really critical. And actually um, like, I totally, I mean, I tried hundreds of bows to find the one that was right for this 1742 Guarneri really? and far more bows, you know, than the number of guys I had to date to find my husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I, I'm, I'm, I think very good. <laughs> it was a much, much more Pain, like it was, you know, problematic search. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> to find the bow, huh? <laughs> You've done some incredible stuff. Uh, I was watching a, a ton of your videos over the past couple of days. You've played Paganini's 24 Caprices in a single show. How that, was that yeah. more of your, was that more of, of your classical side wanting to do that or more of your metal side wanting to do that? I think that was more of my like athlete side oh, okay. because um well actually because I, you know, I was honestly first inspired by the idea because i was reading how you know i used to get all those i don't even remember what they were called but you know you would buy those like magazines in the early 90s that would have like all the stuff about all the hair bands and then hopefully oh, yeah. like a few people who weren't hair bands and yes. they would like <laughs> so i remember reading about like how ingve basically said that like he was totally inspired to like transform his guitar playing after he saw Gideon Kramer play the 24 Caprices on television. And I was like, right. I was like, Whoa, somebody played like all the 24 Caprices in one go. That's 
unbelievable. And so I, and then I, you know, I looked into that and like only a handful of people in history have sort of managed that feat and only a few women. And so I was always like, oh, I wonder if I can do this, like a personal challenge. And, you know, finally one day I like buckled down and I started working at it and I finally got myself, it was like, you know, training for the marathon or something. Oh, yeah. but even worse, <laughs> because you have to, it's like with the caprices, you have to have like this whole set of different skills. So it's like the decathlon, and, you know, but like times a hundred or something. Oh, so, yeah, so I, I did it. And then after I did it, I was like, okay, now I've proven to myself and to the world that I can do this. So then if I ever do it again, what's the point? So then yeah. that was actually when I started really paying more attention to the music. And I'm so glad that that happened that way because like, then I started to have to, you know, because actually when you play a lot of things by the same composer, it's, you know, you have to try to give some kind of variety. So it's not just like the same thing over and over again, because that can get a bit dull. Okay. So I started to define each one more individually and figure out what was special about each one. And it really helped me, you know, kind of take things to the next level because I wanted people to come away from it not going, oh, look, you played them all. Yeah. Then actually, that's kind of like, so what? What's the point? You know, <laughs> like, oh, it's notes. But I'm actually not an athlete. I'm, I'm an artist. So I want people to come away saying, oh, wow, there was so much cool music. And, you know, he had such a variety of interesting things that he did. And, like, if they end up at the end of the night talking about Paganini and not about me, then I knew I played it well. Because it was almost like, Okay. You know, like I distracted them from the technique by the stories that I was telling with the music. Okay. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. That's a wonderful way to look at it. And the one question I had, and I'm, I'm not sure, again, doing research, I found, I, I read about the, the accident that you had in, in 95 on the train. Now. Yeah. Well, not really accidental. It was more like long-standing corporate negligence. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, it, it was it, it was horrific, but, you know, the everything that I've read from you or, or the interviews that I, I've listened to, you're so upbeat and you're so positive about everything. I mean, after that, that uh, I guess for lack of a better word, accident, the, the, the incident on the train, how, how did you keep your, your, your positive outlook on everything? Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely had, you know, moments of depression and adjustment and I had to have lots of therapy to get past PTSD, you know, because that was that was tough. Yeah, because you do um, a lot of traveling. Um, oh, well, I travel by airplane, so that's all good. Oh, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> no, but I was you know, having nightmares and flashbacks and, you know, the whole nine yards. And, yeah. You know, I had to have work, work through that. Um, but I definitely I mean, you know, for anybody who's like overcoming some some kind of traumatic thing i mean i definitely don't want to be like one of those people who's like all right i just you know was positive and just you know like yeah it was it was hard and i i had to work through it and you know luckily i had so many friends and supporters who gave me encouragement and that was super super helpful but i've always been a glass half full person and as long as i can still do my music you know that's important like i would be far more devastated if I lost the tip of one finger because that would ruin my life. But other body parts, like I don't need them as much. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And and I've never had a disease, you know, so it seems very dramatic what happened to me, but 
but actually I've always like been systemically healthy for which I'm very grateful. I mean, thus far, you know, no cancer, no whatever. So, you know, different people (laughs) have different things they have to go through. I have a happy marriage, you know what I mean? Like there are lots of good things. And, um, but I think really it goes back to my childhood because I grew up in a very economically struggling family. My father, um, who actually just died a few days ago, he was unemployed for most of his life. And, you know, that was really hard for my sisters and me and, you know, with our mom trying to take care of us and, you know, our electricity and phone were being shut off. And then some weeks it was like, how are we going to buy groceries and have enough money to put gas in the tank of the car to drive you to your violin lessons? And it was just like, oh my gosh, how can I like pursue my dream in the face of these obstacles? You know, I'd be buying my concert gowns at thrift stores and then, you know, we would be like one missed payment away from losing the roof over our heads as I'm about to do an important competition and just oh, the, the continual stress and uncertainty. And so I almost had to have this sort of illogical faith that this is what I meant to do with my life to uplift people's spirits by sharing music with them. And it's going to work out somehow, even if I don't know how. And so then, you know, when I had a medical situation to deal with, it was almost like not as life-changing as you might imagine because it was like okay here's one more thing i gotta deal with and i'll just keep on going because i'm used to that if that makes sense yeah yeah did it change how you approach the violin at all hmm you know people like to think that like you know negative things are really important for great art like you have to have inks to be a musician and stuff like that (laughs) and i always think that's like, why can't great joy be just as profound? So, you know, yeah, probably if I'd been just kind of like totally sheltered, happy, maybe my art would have been more superficial. I don't know. But I also think falling in love with my husband, the birth of my child, like that there are so many great moments that are just as much a part of me as any like struggles that I went through or any negative things. And so I think it's really the whole package and everything you live through in life. And, you know, like, yeah, that was one thing I went through, but I also, you know, went through, you know, different friends of mine who died or Mm -hmm. wonderful new friends that became a part of my life and all the joys and sorrows that everybody has as, you know, their mixed bag as they, you know, go through this journey. Was that part of uh, the reason for starting the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation? Well, definitely, you know, with, with what I went through as a kid, you know, I, I, people don't realize that a 100% scholarship at your music school isn't enough for some families okay. because that scholarship pays for your lessons. But who is going to buy the sheet music for the piece you've been assigned to learn? Who's going to buy new strings for your violin? Who's going to buy your concert clothes, pay for your piano accompanist, pay for your audition recording sessions, pay for your airfare to the competitions you're entering, pay for the gas to drive to your lessons? And so, you know, all of those things, you know, it's it's just like you have to try to pay for those out of pocket. And for some families, yeah. that's just, you know, really insurmountable. Um, and luckily, you know, we had friends from church and extended family and patrons and just different people who helped us out. But it was it was rough. So my foundation actually has a program, which is the only one of its kind, where we evaluate younger artists based on level of financial need accomplishment. I don't want to say talent because talent is like potential, but it's like, have you realized your potential? You know what I mean? Okay. So accomplishment, like how well do you play? Right. And then also their desire to have a life in music because there are plenty of 
talented people out there, you know, real artists that play well, but they plan to major in medicine and that's great. Yeah. And they might, might win music competitions and that's nice because then it helps them get into Harvard. But, you know, we want to support people who are planning to be musicians. Um, so essentially, essentially poor prodigies <laughs> in a nutshell. Well, that's a good um, way to put it. And we pay for anything except your lessons. So okay. that's been really rewarding. And we've helped more than 100 young artists at this point. Wow. We have an instrument loan program also, which is a nice way for me to give back, you know, for all the instruments that I've borrowed over the years. And <laughs> it's been really fun. Oh, that's fantastic. I I went to college for photography. I wish they had that when I was there because I had, I had to pay for all my own film. I, I went back in the 90s when everything was still on film. So I had to, right. I had to pay for my own film, my own development, uh, develop paper, yeah, the paper, gas to go on location to shoot, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's a, up. A foundation like that would have been fantastic for, for a, a poor prodigy like me. You know what? You that's actually a great idea. That that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, now my foundation has the projects that we're super excited about, and this is just has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that I love music research and I'm really passionate about music education and um I became exposed to some of the um, really neglected works by black composers. When I was a teenager, um, and that has to do with living in Chicago because there were some groups and some research facilities, you know, that were looking into this stuff. And I happened to be exposed to it, which most people weren't back then and still aren't. And so I got to know these concertos from all the way back to the 1700s by composers of African descent from Europe and the Caribbean and then more recently from America. And it's just such great music. And it was this, you know, body of repertoire that people really had been ignoring for a long time. And because I was playing some of this music and made this, this one album in 97, I started getting asked to serve on diversity panels. And of course, you know, one of my big causes is, you know, making classical music accessible to everyone. And, you know, that, you know, do what I can to help everyone have classical in their lives. I was hearing stories about, organizations that you know, target um, underrepresented populations and provide lessons for, you know, inner city children or African-American children or, you know, different things like that. But that, unfortunately, a lot of these children, like their families would feel like they were playing somebody else's music or that, mm. you know, they didn't have this connection to classical. And that's actually not true. Like there were all black orchestras in the U.S. in the 1800s, kind of like the Negro Baseball Leagues. Oh, wow. Fred, Frederick Douglass played the violin. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife, Curtis Scott King, played the violin. There's like so much there. We've, we collected my foundation um, over the last 15 years. We collected more than 900 pieces by more than 350 composers from Africa, Europe, um, Latin America, North America, the Caribbean. And this is all like legit classical music. We're not talking about jazz or folk music or any like real classical music from four centuries worth, uh, men and women. So it's really a treasure trove. And so I released a, the first curricular volume for violin um, with the idea being that, you know, every student of every race and ethnicity would benefit from having 
you know, more diversity to their repertoire and a a fuller picture of humanity, but that also specifically African-American students need to know what this history is so that they can feel an ownership of participation in classical music and hopefully be more likely to be part of classical music's future so that their voices can be heard too going forward. So that's been really exciting work. We have a timeline poster showing 300 composers. We have a coloring book with the 40 most important black composers with their biographies and then other resources on our musicbyblackcomposers.org website. So yeah, that's kind of what I do in my spare time. I honestly don't have any hobbies that don't have something to do with music. Like when I was 10, my grandma taught me how to crochet and my mom was like, oh, this is so healthy. Like it has nothing to do with violin. It has nothing to do with schoolwork. It's like just something totally different that you can enjoy. And as soon as I figured out the mathematical principles behind the creation of different shapes in with the crocheting stitches and stuff, like I worked out how you could crochet a violin. And then like, (laughs) I never made anything else from that point on. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, that's your true love right there. I'm just kind of like, Single-minded. Well, I've I've got a question. My wedding ring looks like a violin, and my purse looks like a violin. (laughs) You have violin earrings, violin necklaces. It's true. I have a question about this. You mentioned that you were you've discovered a lot of these lost pieces of music. How do you actually discover lost pieces of music? Where do you find? Oh my gosh, it's been like. And I wish that social media had existed back when we were doing a lot of our original stuff because it would have been great to sort of chronicle as we went along, like, you know, spending the entire day at the British Library to get this one 19th century Cuban piece or going through a box of uncertain manuscripts from the composer's grandniece's attic or, you know, just all of this kind of stuff. So a lot of it's been, you know, primary research. You know, a lot of this music, because of obvious, like, historic discrimination, you know, is out of print or it's never been published. It's a manuscript only. So it really has been a treasure hunt to find all of this stuff. But it's what's been particularly amazing to me is the amount of, of straight up classical music, you know, like, like violin sonatas and like that coming out of black African nations. This is, you don't even think there's anything going on and there's a lot going on. So this is, mm. this is really a sort of frontier that hasn't at all fully been discovered and incorporated into our mix of stuff yet. And it's been really cool to just find all this great music and start to introduce it to people. Yeah. And, and so you, with this discovery process, you're actually hands-on finding these, these pieces of work. You're not just doing research and, and, and like you said, like through social media, finding out that something exists, you're actually digging through boxes and finding the original manuscripts then. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, it's it's pretty darn exciting. That is incredible. Because, I mean, I love playing the famous stuff, too, you know? Like, oh, yeah. The album of Mozart, everybody's recorded those same pieces before me. I put my own personal stamp on them, and it's great music, and I couldn't live without it. But I wouldn't be satisfied if I only played the famous stuff, because, you know, that wouldn't be enough somehow. Right, right. How did your parents and, and how did your husband will feel about your your love of, of metal i mean if they didn't play a whole <laughs> lot of it for you growing up when you said i'm gonna go out and and i'm gonna you because know, you your first uh you, you debuted with the chicago symphony when you were 10 years old and then so so you're from 10 till uh you know now you're playing classical music and then 
was it a sudden thing where you just tell, hey, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go join a, a heavy metal band, or did they, they kind of <laughs> know? So, um, yeah, I mean, my parents, obviously, like I started listening to what I was listening to. And that was actually nice. I mean, my dad never got into my genres, but, you know, he he um, then at that point, you know, started like putting the classic rock station on in the car when he'd drive into rehearsals and, you know, talk to me about his favorite bands. And, you know, that was a nice bonding experience. Oh, yeah. Um, and then. um yeah, that was just, you know, what they, they tolerated. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, my poor husband, you know, it's, I'm glad we didn't meet on a dating website because he would have just seen heavy metal and gone, I don't think so. And then I would have seen, you know, sports and finance and gone, I don't think I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> we would have never met each other. But, um, yeah, first couple of dates, like, he took me to the opera and I took him to Pantera. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's a that's, little bit of jump, you know, throwing him in on the deep end, but that's you know, fantastic. he survived and, and then there we were hanging out with the guys and Jeez. he was just like, uh, like, you know, when can we go home? I'm like <laughs> I'm like, Craig, you know, we're with you know, Daryl here, like yeah. He's like, okay. And he told me he was thinking to himself that there was somebody else like on the other side of the wall who would have like given their firstborn to be able to be where he was going. Can I go home yet? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, Life's you... ironies, but no, he's grown to appreciate it. And he's definitely enjoyed hanging out with guys like, you know, um, oh, I don't know, like, Lee John Roth is amazing, you know, oh, and he'll yeah. get into talking about classical music and Jimi Hendrix and just like such a amazingly smart guy. And oh, yeah. just, well, he, he even dresses like Hendrix. <laughs> yeah. That's that, that something else. Yeah. But he, I mean, Greg's gotten to meet Tony Iommi and, oh, wow. you know, he, he appreciates what that means for sure. Um, That's amazing. But, but definitely he prefers to hear this stuff played on the violin. But interestingly, <laughs> like when I joined my band, you know, uh, he he was really interested in sort of the creative process and seeing – because with classical, you know, one composer composes the whole thing. Right. And what yeah. was so different about being in a band is like a string quartet isn't going to like everybody write their own part, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like it doesn't work that way. <laughs> but in a – in a band, you know, like one person would come up with a riff, another person would come up with another riff. You decide if they belonged in the same tune or not, and then somebody else would write the bridge, and then you'd add your parts, and you decide, like, okay, should we do three of this and two of that, or where should the vocals come in? And then he would write his melody, yeah. and then I would do a solo, and then – I mean, so it was like this this collective creativity that was a very different process. and It's like a team sport. You know, yeah, and I think he was kind of fascinating to, you know – see how the songs were sort of evolving and coming together and that whole thing. So um, that was neat. I miss it. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we had you know good run. We had five years and then, well, first of all, my bass player's other band, the skull, um, which is actually oh. 
like more more of the original trouble than the band these days that's called trouble yeah, um, yeah. so they really caught on and then they started writing their own originals but also of course playing a lot of the old trouble songs that um i mean they started playing Hellfest and just doing a lot in europe and you know they really you know started okay. doing well so he got super busy with that and then my one guitarist um, ended up hooking up with a girl, actually a friend of mine. They met through <laughs> Facebook through no fault of my own. And they would like comment on my status and start flirting. Oh um, my gosh. So I, I take no responsibility, but they're together and they're happy and it's all good. Oh good. Um, <laughs> but she convinced him to move to Austin and there's like great players in town. We could have totally replaced him as a player, but somehow as a songwriting voice, like he was so pivotal to the sound of our band. Like he would always write the original riff that would start every new song. Ah. Like we just felt like we would have been a totally different band without him. And so that was all kind of happening at the same moment. And we somehow just decided to shake hands. And so we like literally disbanded. We didn't break up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. We just like, okay, let's just call it quits and go our separate ways as friends. And that was just about the t- point in time that my daughter was getting really serious about violin. And I, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and she's too young to practice independently. So, you know, I'm practicing with her at least two hours a day. And that's a big time commitment. And oh, it's like, there yeah. would be no way I could do band rehearsal on top of that these days. So oh, it's wow, all yeah. good, but you know, I do miss it. So, I miss getting out there and just being loud. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do to keep practice interesting for you and your daughter? Oh my gosh. It's never boring because there's such a variety of repertoire. See, I always wonder, no matter how great the song is, like if it's a band that's playing their own songs and they're playing all the, all the great songs they've written, but they're playing it for the 5,000th time. Yeah. Or if it's like somebody who's in a Broadway show and they do three songs, you know, three concerts a day times seven days a week. I'm just like, how can you keep it fresh? How can you keep it inspiring? Right, right. Like I never have any problem because I'm always doing different rep every week. Like one week I'm doing the Tchaikovsky concerto, the next week I'm doing the Mendelssohn concerto, the next week I'm doing the recital. Like, so I'm always mixing it up. So everything is always exciting every time I play it because I'm never getting stale. Well, at the level that you play at, is do you find anything challenging anymore? I mean, is, is it just, or is it just discovering new pieces? Yeah, well, I've been you know very you know genetically blessed in the first place, but then also put in you know a heck of a lot of work you know to yeah. to get the fingers. But um, it, the challenge is less about actually physically doing the thing than it is about you know, trying to have something important to say, something, something meaningful to say is a better way to put it. Um, especially with famous repertoire, you, it's like the onus is like, if you sound good, that's not good enough. Cause you know, every, anybody could sound good on that piece. It's so popular and you know how to, how it goes, right. but you have to do something to make it sound special, but not, not being different for the sake of being different. You don't want to be, you know, illogically eccentric and just do something weird. So you have to think really hard about how do I feel and make it super individual. So you really have to get in touch with yourself and explore the music really deeply. And, you know, and that's, that's always a big challenge to always, you know, and then if, you know, if a few years have gone by and you're returning to that piece, then it's like, okay, hopefully I've grown as an artist. So now what do I have to say about that piece? You can't just fall back on, what you did that was really good um, three years ago because maybe that's not good enough now. And so okay. it's always that challenge. And I, I love it. You know, if I were an athlete, I'd already be long since my decline. But <laughs> as an, as a musician, like you can, you can be better at age 60 than you were at age 50 and better at age 50 than you were at age 40, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, there's no such thing as perfection because 
Like everything could be irreproachable, like no out of two notes, no scratchy notes, like everything was perfect, but it's like, it can always be better. You could always have more to say and more to discover and more to explore. And it's, it's endless. And so no matter how good you get, like you can always try to improve. That's, that's a fantastic point. And I've, I've kept you a, a long time. So I've, I've got one more question for you and I'll, and I'll let you get back to, to being a mom to your daughter. You've toured playing classical. You've toured playing heavy music. What's the, the weirdest, worst thing that's happened to you on, in, in a live environment? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't really have many complaints. Um, I guess, you know, I've had a couple, like just a handful of moments where a string broke on stage. And, you know, those are always kind of more comical than anything. <laughs> you just have to be like, you know, just treat it with irony. Like, okay, you know, yes. here we go. <laughs> and, um, you know, and you hand your violin to the concertmaster and carry on playing on that instrument and then, you know, yours gets passed back and the string gets changed and it gets passed back up and it's, yeah, it's just kind of silly. Um, <laughs> but I wouldn't say that's like, it's not like some disaster. Um, yeah, I never had like, well, I guess I did have one. This was when I was a kid. Somebody like fainted and got carried out of my crowd, oh, but I was like concentrating so hard. I didn't even notice people just told me about it later. <laughs> But apparently the person was okay. So that wasn't tragic either. Well, that's um, good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm forgetting stuff because I tend to be a positive person. But there have been, there have been many memorable concerts. Like, I remember there was this huge snowstorm in um, Dayton, Ohio. And they, they actually declared, like, that it was illegal to drive in certain areas or on certain roads or something like they weren't even allowing you to drive. Oh, wow. And so the orchestra like couldn't get to the hall and neither could most of the audience, but a couple hundred people still showed up and I, my hotel was close enough that I showed up and I played like the whole evening completely acapella, anything I could remember. Wow. Um, instead of the concerto with orchestra. And that was just such a special moment. I always remember that when winter rolls around and we get our first snowstorm. That's amazing. Um, and grief. yeah, and then just, you know, I love performing in a variety of different venues. One of the things that's so nice about classical, and I honestly wish more rock musicians would do this. And I was talking to Apocalyptica about this because I was like, well, you guys are cellists. So do you do what like a classical cellist would do where you show up to a town and then you like go the day before to a local music school and coach the kids and then you go to the club and play your gig. You know, um, yeah. and they, they don't do that, which I think is really oh. unfortunate because that would be so inspiring for so many young cellists. Oh I have gosh, to yeah. say the non-classical group that does a great job of that is Black Violin. Those two hip hop guys that like play hip hop oh. on their violins. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're so awesome. Like they go to schools, you know, teach the kids and play for the kids and talk to the kids. And they're really setting a good example to other artists as well. Um but that's what I love to do. So I'll go, you know, like, because the way it works is, you know, when you show up to an orchestra, you're the guest artist and you have to have a few rehearsals with them because you've never played together before or you've never played that piece together before or whatever. Right, right, yeah, um, so you have to come a couple days early, but then the, the, a lot of the orchestras, you know, really try to be a presence in their community. They're not just about playing their concerts. And right. so they'll invite me to come a couple of days early before that. And they'll send me to different places. Like they'll send me to a hospital or a children's hospital. They'll send me to a retirement home. They'll send me to the local 
place where all the business guys like to have lunch to play for that crowd and try to like get them excited to come to the symphony. They'll send me to lots of schools. Like I'll play for kids who are studying music. I'll play for kids who aren't studying music, kindergarten, high school. I'll go to like the local university and, and teach. Like there's just all the things that you do in the community. And, um, you know, that's just so important. And I've even played in a couple of jails over the years. So I love doing that stuff. And, you know, there's, there's nothing more thrilling than playing in a big hall for a big crowd or a really acoustically gorgeous hall. But then there's also nothing more special about just playing for 20 people up close and personal. And I love it all. That's fantastic. Do you get a a lot of requests for, for rock songs when you, when you, when people know you're coming around? Well, you know, actually, um, South America is such a different world. One thing, like those orchestras, they, their musicians play with utmost passion, even in the first rehearsal. And (laughs) North American orchestras, you know, they're very professional. They will, but they're not like pouring their hearts out in the first rehearsal. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) Totally different thing. (laughs) But, um, and oh, and then when I play in Chile, Everybody gives you a hug after the concert, like young, old, male, female, doesn't matter. Like every audience member comes and gives you a hug, like a, like a legit, like real hug. And and if, if somebody had told me that ahead of time, I might've been weirded out, but because I didn't expect it, it just actually felt totally natural in that moment. Like that was just the thing that was happening and I loved it. And then wherever I went, you know, after that day, I was like, wait, where's my hugs? (laughs) 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 You know, so it's, it's really interesting. You know, and then you go to Japan and like every audience member wants a minimum of four autographs per person. Oh my god! Cause gosh. they want you to like, they want you to autograph the CD booklet and the CD face and the concert program and the little um, heavy cardboard gold edged special autograph card that they brought with them that they oh. all have. <laughs> and so the autograph line takes like two hours and every single person eats four autographs or oh or more God. if they bought more than one cd so it's just like really guys oh my but that's but they're God. used to it they don't mind standing there for two hours oh my <laughs> gosh yeah so i love just experiencing the different cultures but yeah so when i was in um actually it was chile and brazil were the two places where i've like finished the classical concerto and the audience goes like Play some metal, play some metal. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, so I was in Brazil. I'm like, okay, if you asked for it, so I like broke out some simple Torah, and they 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 loved it. Oh my it worked. god, that was <laughs> well, like, that's a good choice. I would first of all never do that in the U.S., but they would never like start yelling "play some metal" in a classical <laughs> yeah. show, anyways. So. Not yet, not not until. Uh, once you're through with yeah. the, uh, the the metal community and then start yeah. coming to you, to your classical concerts, well, they then do, and that's really fun. And there's nothing more rewarding than having somebody come up to you after a show and going like, "That was my first ever live classical concert, and I loved it." And then I'm like, "Yes, you know, that's so great." Oh, that's and, amazing. But honestly, you know, if I'm getting a metal a metal fan or a rock fan out to a classical concert, actually, if I'm doing an encore, I want to play one more classical piece because they already know that rock is great, and I want to show them that classical is great. But the wonderful thing about South America is they're less fixated on these delineations. And, you know, it's like they already knew that classical was great, but they happened to be metal fans. And I it was almost like I wanted to honor that. And, you know, just it was a great moment. That's fantastic. Well, if you ever get the chance, I would love to hear you do some Rage Against the Machine on a 276-year-old violin. So <laughs> that would be amazing to me. Dun, 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 dun. Ex- oh, my gosh. Exactly. Um, Play some Gear of the Boomerang. 
Yes. That would be crazy. Rachel, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I really do appreciate it and, and definitely want to catch you the next time you come into the D.C. area. I'm going to keep an eye out for you. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely let you know. Hey, I should say one last thing, which is that, you know, we've talked about how, like, classical inspired metal, but now it's just starting to go in the opposite direction. And, oh, you know, really? classical has been influenced by other other genres. My latest album is actually an entire album of classical music inspired by blues. Um, there's been, a, wow. you know, whether it's like folk music from different eras, you know, there's been a lot of classical that was inspired by other things that sort of elevated it or incorporated it into their art music. And just recently there started to be a little bit of symphonic or, you know, violin music that's been inspired by metal. And I have one particular composer friend, Earl Minian. He actually has a band that's entirely bowed string instruments, but it's a band called seven sons. And they got their start kind of um, playing with Dillinger and then they kind of started doing their own thing. And, um, it's really awesome. He used to be in a electric violin kind of, you know, drums, the whole nine yards, um, extreme music band. It was, I guess it was more hardcore kind of slash death metal that it was called resolution 15. Oh, wow. Um, you should check their stuff out. But anyhow, yeah. my friend Earl Manian, he wrote a violin concerto that I've now played with a couple of orchestras. And this violin concerto is death metal and like incorporated into a work for acoustic violin and symphony orchestra. And it's like nothing you've ever heard before. And it's, it's really, really great. And what was so amazing is that, you know, when I performed it uh, with with the Phoenix symphony last year, members of the audience, very few of them identified it as such. They just heard it as a piece of contemporary classical music that sounded like it sounded. And they absolutely loved it, including all the senior citizens in the crowd. And that was so great. Like, I mean, these people would hate listening to this, but they loved this concerto. And so that was that was really cool to see. That's amazing. And you, you just jogged my memory on one thing I wanted to ask you about. You were, you're the only living artist and the first woman to be a part of, of the uh, Carl Fisher's Master's Collection series. Um, and it was a, that's a publication of, of – it's your compositions and arrangements – is that, yeah. is that original compositions and, and arrangements of, of other composers' works? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like full-fledged. I mean, my daughter's going to do it someday, but I've never written like a sonata or a concerto or a symphony. That's probably I'm too intimidated, honestly. Okay. She, you know, probably I didn't like have that background trying to do it when I was young and being uninhibited and getting over <laughs> by, you know, my self-consciousness. But, you know, but, but on the other hand, I'm more about playing other people's music and making it my own, but I love all this historic stuff and working with living composers and, you know, I'm content, but I do write a lot of my own sort of virtuoso violin pieces and cadenzas, which is, is sort of like the guitar solo in a rock song, except the orchestra stops playing entirely. So you're not soloing over a riff. You're just uh-huh. making your whole entire like fantasy based on stuff from that movement composing your own thing. Okay. So I do all of that, which, you know, not every violinist does. Some violinists just play other people's cadenzas. So um, okay. it's really important to me to, you know, show, especially like younger artists coming up, like, Hey, this isn't something that, that, you know, dead men used to do. Like right. I can do this and you can do it too. And I actually have a podcast episode on my violin adventure show. Um, that's called don't be scared. It's fun. How to write your own cadenza. Oh, cool. <laughs> So honestly, the most gratifying thing is when somebody tells me that they were inspired 
by me doing it to write their own thing. So that's what I really hope to do is just, you know, sort of, you know, give people an example of what's possible. That's fantastic. Well, where can people find your work and where can they follow you and, and see what you're doing with, with all these, these works that you've got from, from black composers um, and, and your yeah, foundation. So my foundation, my foundation is rbpfoundation.org. My um, NBC project is music by black composers.org. And then my own website is rachelmartinfine.com. And then all my socials are RBP violinist on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So, um, and then of course my foundation and my music by black composers has its own socials, but you know, you can sort of find us all through each other and it's all one big happy family. <laughs> That's a lot awesome. to keep up with. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. I have to post on my 12 things <laughs> and it's, it's all good. Yeah. I, I, I don't have 12, but the, the couple of podcasts that I do, yeah, it, you know, having three accounts is, is, is tough. I can't imagine all the accounts that you've got to keep up with. It's just. That'd be crazy. Yeah, but really worth it. And I love the fact that we're living in an age where we can connect with people so easily. Oh my gosh, I remember when we used to have to subscribe to those like paper fanzines and all of that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think those days are over, right? Oh my gosh! Yeah, you, although the anticipation was something. There was always that anticipation of getting something in the mail. Yeah, you did feel like more of an exclusive club in a way. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for coming on with me. I really do appreciate it. I've learned a lot, and I'm inspired to to learn more on my own. All right. Well, I look forward to staying in touch, and I look forward to checking out more of the other episodes of your podcast now that I've been on it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 